Hey everyone, our greatest desire is that this podcast would make you more excited about studying the Bible. So we encourage all to come to their own conclusions based on a personal study of God's word regarding the subjects being discussed. The views expressed by the guests on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our sponsors or who they represent. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review or share it with your friends. Now, here's the show. What will, uh, in a sense, decide the issue for them is what happens to Job, how Job responds to it. That is, in a sense, the answer for both the Ben Elohim and, of course, potentially Job as well. Who caused this? Who's responsible? If it's our creator, then we have a really bad God. and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. With me today is Dr. Carl Wilcox. He's an English professor with a particular passion for Old Testament narrative. He spent the last 10 years grappling with the book of Job. And... It's a rather strange book. It's found near the middle of the Bible, just before Psalms, even though most scholars believe it takes place before the story of Abraham in Genesis. And it's essentially just recorded conversations in the form of Hebrew poetry. But it tackles the difficult questions, the ones we all have. Is God just? Why do good people suffer? And what part does God play in that suffering? Now, we pick up the book of Job in the first chapter, verse 6. The narrator transports us to some celestial realm where God and the angels, or the Ben Elohim in Hebrew, are meeting. And somehow, Satan just shows up. Now, we don't know the rules here, or how Satan can even come into the presence of God at this time, but he's there and he's allowed to speak. In fact, God notices his presence and asks him where he's come from. The question is curious because of course, God is not asking the question because he needs an answer. Right. Therefore, the question has a satirical function. Mm -hmm. It's meant to potentially tempt Satan, as it were, to consider Job. We can read it there. It says, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Notice the redundancy in Satan's answer. Right, he's just saying that, you know, he's he's just on earth. He's just walking around. He's he's essentially just not doing much. He's harmless. He's like a he's on a walkabout. He's on a walking tour. He's a, a disinterested tourist. That's the impression <laughs> he would create. He has absolutely no agenda right. apart from wandering aimlessly about. So there we get a clear example of Satan 
in in effect lying, mm. uh, deceiving. It's a fairly transparent lie. Nobody, I think, in the in the room believes him. <laughs> right. But that's how he would portray himself as an innocent uh, observer of God's universe. And that, of course, raises the implication, and I think Satan is implying this, that on earth where there is so much pain, he is innocent. Therefore, God must be the author of that pain. Right. He's really trying to uh, remove himself from any suggestion that he's, in fact, the devil. (laughs) Right. Satan is claiming he's harmless, and so God responds with sort of an unexpected question. Yes, and other commentators have wondered about this because it would appear that God is actually offering up Job as a kind of living sacrifice to Satan's cruelty. Uh, But there's another way to consider this, because in verse 8, when God asked the question, this is his second question, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. That word evil, of course, is a key term because now the question emerges, who's the author of evil, God or Satan? And Mm -hmm. Satan can't help himself. He actually exposes himself in verse nine when he says, so Satan answered the Lord and said, "Does does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, In other words, either God is the one who causes human misery or Satan. And then in verse Mm. 9 and 10, Satan pretty much identifies himself as the author of evil and human misery. And he identifies God as the one who protects people from human misery because God's put a hedge around Job. Which begs the question, how does Satan know that there's even a protective hedge around Job? Yeah, it's, it's ironic that Satan presents himself as an innocent and then, in his own words, identifies himself as the dangerous person in the universe. And God is the one who protects Job from whom? Well, Satan. Now, the conversation progresses to where Satan, in, in the next few verses, questions Job's motives for being faithful to God. And he states that if God's hand touches him, that Job will surely curse God. Yeah, so Satan is contesting that if God were to hate Job or treat him badly, Job would quite naturally turn on God. And that argument is is a serious one. And uh, it's an argument that God cannot ignore because it's something that every human being uh, more or less uh, understands. When we suffer and we don't know that it's our fault, we assume that God must be the author of it. And in verse 11, that's basically what Satan sort of implicitly, I mean, he doesn't present it as a proposition. It's just assumed when he says, but now stretch out your hand, he's speaking to God, and touch all he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. You mentioned Satan has an audience here, Mm. and he's trying to paint a certain picture of God, but God doesn't ever defend himself. Satan says it's God's hand. God says it's Satan's. Yep. And the audience has to choose who to believe. Yeah, it's not. I, you're right. I don't think Satan seriously believes he can persuade God to believe him. 
but he's got those angels, the Ben Elohim, who are still in the room, presumably. So this argument must be for their benefit. And of course, potentially also for our benefit. Hmm. This is an argument which not only would affect the Ben Elohim in the conversation, but if it's recorded and passed down throughout the rest of human history, there's a chance that what he says here could determine the outcome of the conflict between God and Satan. In other words, are we going to believe that God causes both prosperity and misery? Or are we going to think that maybe God causes prosperity and Satan causes misery? And a lot hangs on on which way you decide on that issue. Yeah, and I think that we find, especially today, we find that this this is the worldview that many people have, that God is the one that is bringing suffering upon those that deserve it, and even in some cases, those that don't. Yes, the insurance companies refer to disasters as acts of God. Acts of God. They invariably do not refer to them as acts of Satan. (laughs) Right. And uh, that is exactly what Satan argues in verse 11 when he says, God, you stretch out your hand and you touch everything Job has. Mm. And that is Satan's proposition, uh, although it's, it's uh, communicated as just a, uh, an, as- an assumption regarding who God is. Satan doesn't argue that God causes human suffering. In verse 11, he assumes it. Mm. It's it's a given. It's not even questioned. And this is the, the, the diabolical cleverness, rhetorical cleverness of Satan. He doesn't say, by the way, God, we all know you're the author of pain and suffering. Had he done that, the Ben Elohim would say, wait a minute, is that true? Right. Instead, he just offers it as a given. As if it's true. As an axiom, yes. Okay, Lord, you touch him and then we'll see if he's still loves you and won't curse you to your face. I listened to um, an interview by Stephen Fry, the uh, the British author and TV personality, mm. um, where he was being interviewed on an Irish TV station about, you know, what would he say? He's a very vocal atheist. What oh, would yeah. he say if he, you know, after life passes him by and if he wakes up and there is a God, what would he say? to that God. And um, here's some of his words. He would say, you know, this is his theodicy. Bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And of course, he's describing Satan, but he believes it's God. Mm. He hasn't read the book of Job, Clearly. at least not carefully. And of course, you know, we can't dodge the question. What he's really saying is, well, yeah, you, you, we can blame it on Satan, but then Mr. Fry might well say, but who created Satan? Right. And that reaches a level of comprehension that I don't think we can, uh, as Christians, as believers, I don't think we can really sort that out. We have some analogies. I mean, we don't necessarily uh, prosecute the parents of mass murderers mm. for the murders that their children conducted. I mean, that's, a, that's an analogy. Uh, but in a sense, he's oversimplifying the problem. Mm-hmm. He's making a narrative that isn't really a biblical narrative at all. 
it's an easy narrative to fall into because yes, there does seem to be a capricious, diabolical being in the universe who does this to us. But the question is, which being is it? Because there are two in scripture. There's, there's the creator God, and then there's this fallen uh, devil or, or angel named Satan. And frankly, uh, Satan would have us believe that God is the author of all human misery and that he is simply wandering about observing God wreck mayhem on his own creation, mm. as Fry perfectly described it. He has, in a sense, he's articulating what Satan is arguing for in this prologue to Job. Okay, that, that makes sense. But why doesn't God just defend himself against these accusations then? God is God never has to defend himself because if he did, he wouldn't be God. And uh, Satan, of course, does have to defend right. himself and attempt to persuade people of things that aren't true. Because God is all truth, all he has to do is exist. The problem from our point of view is that we're deceived and we're vulnerable to Satan's suggestions. And that puts God in a difficult position. God should not have to stoop in order to persuade us to not mm. believe Satan. And in a sense, he, he doesn't really engage in debate with, with the devil. Uh, but he does, I think, in his sovereign power, arrange history in ways that human beings can begin to question Satan's assumptions. And so in 12, God isn't necessarily saying, Satan, you're wrong, I'm right. He's just saying, this is the divine assumption. Right. And the bin Elohim, who are of course still in the room, they can at that point make a decision. Will we believe another angel or will we follow the, uh, the given or the belief here or the truth of God himself? We don't know where their minds are at. Right. But what will, uh, in a sense, decide the issue for them is what happens to Job, how Job responds to it. That is, in a sense, the answer for both the Ben Elohim and, of course, potentially Job as well. Who caused this? Who's responsible? If it's our creator, then we have a really bad God. So this this audience, the... Ben Elohim, they are, they are us. Yes, in a sense, they're not fallen like we are. See, we have a we have a uh, bias towards Satan's mm. remarks. I mean, this bias can be observed in all of us. When anything bad happens, we almost instantly assume that God is doing it to us. Even if we're Christians and believe in Satan, we tend to assume that we've offended God and He's punishing us. Um, that the suffering we're going through, if we can't come up with a cause, then we sort of just piously uh, utter a few uh, platitudes. But down deep, we struggle with this, this contradiction between a God of love and our own human experience. Namely, if God loves me so much, why is my life so difficult so much of the time? And that's not easy to resolve. In fact, most of us just avoid that contradiction and maintain a kind of um, a status quo in the sense that we, we bury the contradiction as deep as we can. Mm -hmm. Job can't do that. Right. 
He's just he's just suffering too much. The contradiction is right in his face. And it forces him to ask the question, God, why is this happening to me? I'm not even guilty. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and this is the question that many people have today. Oh, yeah. Why do good people suffer? I remember reading in a book once, um, said something like, you know, good people don't suffer mm. because no one is intrinsically good according to the Bible. In fact, only one person was ever truly good, and that's Jesus, and mm. he volunteered for suffering. Yes, it is interesting that God himself in, in the prologue here to Job identifies Job as blameless. This is one, chapter one, verse eight. Right. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. That does not mean that Job was sinless. Right or that he did not have a fallen nature, or he wasn't, as it were, prone to error. But what it does mean is that Job had such a character that whenever he was confronted with evil, he turned from it instead of embracing it. Uh, he was blameless in the sense that he was committing no known violation of God's will. So you said blameless. Is that what the word perfect there is? Yes. In the King James Version or the authorized version, we get the word perfect in the translation, uh, perhaps a better translation. And we find this in, in some of the newer translations is the word blameless. The problem, I think, with the word perfect is that it implies a state of absolute perfection or stasis mm. such that I've arrived and there's nothing more I can learn. Right. And that runs counter to the whole of Scripture, where uh, even Moses, Abraham, uh, Daniel, to some extent, they're on a learning curve. Right. They don't possess the mind of God in the sense that they can't be taught anything new. But even Satan seems to agree that Job is blameless. Yes, he does. He doesn't bring an accusation uh -huh. because he can't. So when God says Job is blameless, it means he's blameless. But we shouldn't assume then that, that Job is Jesus or an unfallen angel or anything like that. He certainly doesn't perceive himself in that way. So God essentially allows Satan. We see at the end of uh, that verse 12, as soon as the Lord kind of puts it back into Satan's hands, mm. um, no pun intended, Satan leaves. Yeah, that is amusing, isn't it? <laughs> and it's a very concrete statement. Both of them refer to the hand. Right. And, and this reference to the hand, I think we should concentrate on because this is the picture of God actually touching a person. Mm. And according to Satan, when God touches a person, they writhe in pain. Mm. And then, as we already pointed out, God then turns that around and says, Satan, I'm going to allow Job to be in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. In other words, the implication here being that if Satan's hand touches a human being, they writhe in agony. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, that's the great debate in the universe. In terms of human misery, who's the author, God or Satan? Because in a sense, there's nothing more to say unless they're going to go back and forth throughout eternity saying, no, it was you. No, it was you. No, I know it's you. <laughs> In other words, the only way we can really know the truth about whose hand causes human misery is to now observe what happens to Job. 
when we're back, we'll have a look at just how bad Job's suffering gets and why God even allows such suffering to happen in Job's life and in yours. Stay with us. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. We'd just like to say a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, Weimar Institute. Nestled in the beautiful mountains of Northern California, Weimar is an educational institution offering degrees in business, theology, nursing, natural science, and more. For information on what Weimar could offer you, check out their website at weimar.edu. Now Job finds himself caught in the crossfire of this conflict between God and Satan. From the beginning of this interaction, Satan has claimed that Job only serves God because God has blessed him and protected him. And so to prove Satan wrong to the onlooking angels, God allows Satan to bring immense suffering into Job's life. And he wastes no time in doing so. In fact, it's one of the most shocking, jaw-dropping scenes in all of scripture. One of Job's servants shows up to speak to him during the day and tells him that some foreigners have come and stolen all of his oxen and donkeys, and he had hundreds, and then they killed all of his servants. But this is only the beginning. In the midst of that conversation, another one of his servants shows up and claims that the fire of God has fallen from heaven and killed all of his sheep and those that looked after them as well. But none of that really compares to the news that Job receives next. A final servant comes and tells him that all of his children were gathered at his eldest son's home when a great wind came and caused the whole house to collapse in on itself, killing every single one of his children. Satan has wasted no time in wreaking havoc in Job's life. But God gave him permission to do so. So does that mean that God has to take the blame? I don't think God has to take blame for Job's suffering, but there is that problem. If God hadn't given Job into Satan's hand, Job obviously would not have suffered. And more to the point, he wouldn't have lost all 10 of his adult children to death. So that, that's a serious fact. And I don't think as readers, we can just dismiss that with some theological nonsense. We have to acknowledge, at least if you read the first chapter or two of Job, that this contest between God and Satan incurs casualties. Mm. It's not a, it's not an easy matter. It, it, you can't, God can't wave a magic wand over the sin problem and just make it vanish. The bigger question is, are those casualties ultimately uh, justified? Hmm. And that's a big question that I'm not sure the book entirely answers. And it's a question we may have to live with. But, but another way to approach it is to ask this question. If God were not to allow Job to suffer, what would have been the outcome for the human race right. then? 
And then I think you can see that God is in a position where he really has to choose between two rather less than ideal outcomes. Sure, he could preserve Job's happy life, but then Satan could continue to argue that Job only loved God because God bribed him as it were. Mm. And then of course, if that message gets out through the universe, it colors God's character right. in a particular way. And then unless, and unless God allows Job to suffer and allows Job to be tested, it's just a matter of time before the evidence colors God as basically uh, bribable, mercenary. He's only lovable if if he can buy your love and affection. Mm. Um, you know, and and that's a, that's a huge risk as well. And I'm not sure I I can fully grasp what the implications of that might be. Mm. But uh, certainly, if Job doesn't go through any suffering, Satan's charge stands for eternity. Right. Or at least until someone else like Job comes along. So I don't see how God can avoid it. But notice that God also puts some qualifications on this in verse 12. He says, everything he has is in your power, but you can't put a hand on his person. Mm -hmm. So God isn't giving Satan total destructive power over Job. But God did eventually let him touch him, right? Mm. In chapter two, uh, there's basically the same conversation. Satan this time claiming that Job's only really been faithful still uh, because God has held Satan back from touching him. So, you know, yeah. God gives Satan permission to do so. And then Job is plagued with these massive boils all over his body. At that point, there's no hands mentioned. Right. God appears to be taking responsibility for what's happening mm. to Job. Not the blame in the sense that he's culpable, but he is taking responsibility because he is, in fact, in a sense, been incited against Job by Satan. Mm. In other words, Satan has tempted God and God has met the challenge. And he is now, that is God, is apparently against Job without cause. And, and this is very interesting because it's as if God is saying, I am being, I am for a period of time here uh, acting as an unjust deity hmm. because I am punishing him without cause. And there's no way you can get around that in human terms if a judge punishes a person for a crime they didn't commit and he knows they're innocent, he's an unjust judge. Right. So God in verse three basically says, I have been incited by Satan to destroy Job without cause. I am unjust in doing this. He's not trying to pretend or, or, or cloak it in sanctity. He's saying, I am doing something that's not right. Now, that, that may create a lot of problems in some people's minds. Well, how can God do something that's not right? The point is, is that it's temporary. Okay. So if a, ju a, a, a human judge passes sentence that's unjust, but later corrects that, then we consider that justice has been, has been met. Eventually. Yes. So God is saying, you know, I am doing this temporarily because there's a higher issue at stake than mere justice. Now, what's more important in the universe than justice? The thing that's greater than justice is, of course, love. 
And if, and this is what's ironic, if Job is to understand God's love, Job has to, in a sense, understand what God is willing to do to make that love real to fallen human beings. He is willing to risk his reputation in order to demonstrate love. I mean, that's, that's I think, in verse 3, what God is, is admitting to. I may not be just in the moment, but let's see how this pans out at the end. Wait, 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 wait. Mm. So, so let me get this right. You're saying that God is actually willing to be seen as an unjust God? Yeah. If that means he can be seen as a God of love? And I'm willing to risk my reputation as a just deity, at least temporarily, in order to get across a more important truth. Mm. And that more important truth is simply this. I am not the one who causes human misery. And yet, and this is what's paradoxical, in order to get that across, he has to look like the he one. He has to actually appear as if right. he's causing human misery. And he's willing. And he's willing to take that risk because he can see that in the end, something much greater will come out of this experience than the stereotypical status quo assumption that all human misery ultimately comes from God. And I think that this is the, this is the difficult thing because yeah. we all suffer. We've all suffered and likely we all will still suffer. And we, we experience that now. We experience that suffering in the present and it oftentimes overtakes us in the present. And we don't have that, a lot of us don't have that big picture yeah. of, well, this is what it means in the grandest scale of the whole thing. It's what I'm suffering now and I want to know why I'm suffering now. Yeah. And I would like to suffer in a meaningful way. Right. And God doesn't always offer us that. And the question is why? And Job asked the same question, God, I'm suffering. And it's not so much that he rejects the suffering, but he can't accept the idea that he's suffering for no purpose or no reason. And he wants consolation at that level. You know, if I've done something wrong, show me so that my suffering will have meaning. And of course, this is, this is a big human enterprise. How can my suffering be given purpose and meaning? Does, and, does uh, all suffering have meaning? Well, this, this is very hard to believe when you're in the midst of suffering. It doesn't appear to have any utility whatsoever because they can find no purpose in their suffering. It's just nasty. Job wants to know why. Mm. And he is implacable in his demand to understand why he is suffering as a believer. And I think this is essential and perhaps unique somewhat to Christianity. We as, a, uh, as believers cannot accept the idea that our suffering has no ultimate purpose. Mm. Now, I may not be able to always put a name to the suffering sure. in terms of its meaning, sure. but I as an article of faith, I believe it has purpose. And I get a lot of that from the book of Job. So one thing God achieves for Job, and this is actually a reward. Job gets all his stuff back at the end of the book, but there's also some answers that he gets from God. Uh, so for example, when Job really begins to suffer, and I think that really truly begins when he learns that his children have all been destroyed. At that point, he's asking the question, if God is a God of love and I am blameless, ethically blameless, and I eschew evil, why is it that this is happening to me? So does he, does he think it's God? Does, does he say, okay, this is, this is God doing this to me? 
Well, he assumes that. Uh, we see that in Job, what is it, 1921? This is the assumption that Job has. It's the assumption that his friends have. Every human being in this book assumes that when Job suffers, God is actually doing it. In other words, they believe what Satan says in the prologue. Uh, Job 19.21, Job says to his friends, Have pity on me, have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Hmm. So there you have the concrete reiteration in precise terms Uh of what Satan assumes, namely human misery is caused by God's hand. So I think we can infer that Job actually serves a God who he believes rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. This, This is fascinating. Job actually believes that God is the one punishing him, Mm. that it's the hand of God that touched me. Mm, Yeah. Yet if we look a few verses down, he says, I know my redeemer lives. I mean, exactly. how does that work? And the question is, why would he want to be with a God? That's punished who, him. At this point, apparently is a contradiction. Right. Who loves human beings, loves them so much that he tortures them. And I can only, I can only infer that Job, in fact, because he's a faithful man, believes that there is an explanation. Hmm. He just doesn't have it yet. He doesn't know it. But he will have it when he gets to heaven, as it were. So this is essential to the Christian uh, profession. We don't have all the answers, Mm. but we believe that the answers are there. It's just a matter of when God decides to reveal them to us. So this is what makes Job, as it were, an exemplar of faith. He could have easily fallen into despair and decided that simply God doesn't have an answer. There are no answers. God is fickle. God is a contradiction. But he doesn't. It's amazing. Faith here is not who is the most heroic. Faith is who is the most human. Who's willing to express what they feel in in the sense of, I'm really wishing I wasn't born. That's not a heroic posture. Mm, It's not. That's the posture of someone who's losing their grip, in a sense. Um, And when Jesus said, Father, you know, may this cup pass from me, that's a very human moment as well. Why have you forsaken me? He's he's living in complete, total faith in God, and yet at the same time as a human, he's in pain. And and that comes out, if, if possible, nevertheless, thy will be done. That's the beautiful pattern. Job is suffering. He wishes he was never born. Nevertheless, God, I'm going to trust you. So this is an interesting example of what happens to believers when they they become Christians, they have a faith, and then because of circumstances in life, often misfortune, they discover that their belief in God is no longer working. What do they do at that point? Unfortunately, many people just leave God. Yeah. Job doesn't. He hangs in there. Even though he doesn't understand it. Even though he has every reason to just throw it over. Unlike Stephen Fry, who, whom you quoted earlier, he does not do that. He insists because I think as a believer, he knows that if there's no answer in God, there's no answer at all. And, and you can be angry at God, but that still doesn't give you an answer. Job has lost everything. And he gets to the point where he even says things like, 
I wish I wasn't born, cursed the day of my birth. Why didn't I just die in my mother's womb? He's a broken, broken man. But these statements do not mean that he has lost his faith. They don't mean that he's given up on God. Now, I think it's important to ask yourself the question, when did I ask or when did I wish that I wasn't born? We normally associate this with people who are clinically depressed, but I think that's a mistake. And I don't think it's right to medicalize this this kind of experience. This is a spiritual experience. When Job wishes he hadn't been born, it's because his life has become unbearable. I think of myself, my father died when I was 15. At the time, I met that that misfortune with faith. But that was only because I didn't really understand what was happening to me or what the long-term effects would be. And this is, this is very characteristic of, of human experience. Something bad will happen, and in the moment we have the adrenaline or the, you know, the backbone or the faith, as it were, to sail right through it. But when the, when the friends stop visiting, when no one's bringing you meals, when the funeral is over, the memorial service is over. When life just comes back And to you're you. a teenage kid and you don't have a dad and you got to make your own way, then other things start to happen. And you don't understand them. You just think it's your problem. Why am I not getting good grades anymore? Why do I feel like just hiding away from other people? Why do I not think I'll live past age 40? All these things happen to you and they're not your fault. You know, you didn't do anything to deserve them. And then you, you ask these metaphysical questions. Not only why was I born, but why did my dad die? And I can remember claiming a promise in the Bible that says God will be a father to the fatherless. Yeah. I claimed that promise as a college student, but the suffering did not go away. None of the pain left, but I kept, I kept claiming it. Now at age 57, I look back and I realize, yes, I believe God was my father, but it wasn't as easy as it would have been if my dad had lived. Right. In other words, there's no magic dust. I think when I get to heaven, I'll see things I can't see now in terms of God rescuing me. But at this point, I'm still going by faith. Uh, I mean, I don't wish that I hadn't been born, but there were times in my 20s and even 30s where I wondered what the point was given the amount of suffering. And of course, I've suffered very little relative to people who are currently living in Syria or in, other, in another trouble spot. I mean, their, their level of suffering is so far beyond anything we know in the mm. developed world, for the mo- you know, in most cases. How do they manage that? Yeah. And of course, the, it comes down to this basic chapter three message. You can reach the point as a human being where you wish you had never been brought into existence. And Christianity is designed to take those times seriously. It's tragic what's happening to Job, but Job will not let the tragedy define his life in terms of his eternal destiny. But in the moment, he's experiencing tragedy out of in a very concrete way. And he's got this hope, but in the moment, he is really, 
in some ways, his experience is very much like that of all humanity. He's every man. Anyone who's suffered is Job at this point. And Job is them. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or hearken back to a previous episode, you can find us at whythedidthat.org. Please also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on your favorite social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at whythedidthat. This show was produced and edited by Christian Freed. Finally, we want to thank Weimar Institute the media department, and especially Teresa Costello for help making this possible. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. (laughs) 